makes you such a threat. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Joshua. Betu wastelo, tayan wachianke chante wastena pechi uzapielo, lechante itaha owokalake le unkipiki he wastelo. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. It's a good day for all of us to be here. And you're listening to First Voices Radio, Antiochus and Ghost Horse, sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Asopus, or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Asopus and the lands of the Muncie speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. And now to our first guest. Sandra Whitehawk is the author of A Child of the Indian Race, A Story of Return, published in December of 2022 by the Minnesota Historical Society Press and Sandra is a Sichanghu Lakota adoptee from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. She's the founder and director of First Nations Repatriation Institute. And FNRI is the first organization of its kind, whose goal is to create a resource for the First Nations people impacted by foster care or adoption to return home, reconnect and reclaim their identity. The Institute also serves as a resource to enhance the knowledge and skills of practitioners who serve First Nations peoples. First of all, I want to welcome you to First Voices Radio, Sandra. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I was so excited about this interview. This is a long time coming, and I'm glad I was able to read the book, A Child of the Indian Race, A Story of Return. It, it seems that's what's happening, and you've been doing this all your life and you know it's it's very poignant yet it's sad but happy and and very strong and all the familiarity that that is in this book is actually telling a a much broader story of native people in in your position as as you have put it so eloquently in this in this book this position this story is being shared by a lot of people and it's only been out a month and I'm really 
looking forward to sharing this radio program with others, but so much so that the 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 other adoptees that they say, you know, I don't know if I'm native or not, is because of the colonial innuendos to say at our time that it was you had to be ashamed to be native, that you couldn't live up to expectations. Um, so we we could only be and think menially in a sense of we can only be janitors. We couldn't go go on and get college educations and things like that. Or we only had to stay on a reservation. We only had to be what we were without being the native person, as you you know what I mean. Um, and so I wanted just to begin it that way. It's a big introduction, and I'm so excited. that it, I, There's a question in that somewhere, Sandra. <laughs> well, I, I I took I wrote notes. You said not to for you know you don't like to forget either. And I have to I found that in my age I write a lot of little notes, so I don't forget to say. But can I say right off the right at the top, the title of the book, A Child of the Indian Race, is in quotations. Be, and it's I didn't want at first I didn't want that to be the name of the book because I thought I had another title in mind. But the uh, panel at the Minnesota Historical Society felt that that should be the title. And it is I've already had someone on Facebook say you shouldn't it shouldn't be titled this because we're not a race. We're a political entity. And I said, well, I know that. And but there is a reason why it says that it's a child of the Indian race. It's what was in my adoption papers. And there is a very uh, there is a moment in a, a recovery uh, group that I was in where that statement is the very statement that uh, I break through and am able to pursue finding out exactly where I come from. I knew, but I didn't know where I came from. So uh, that's why it is a child of the Indian race. It can spark a lot of conversation now, especially with the Supreme Court decision hanging until June. Um, you know, that's certainly a place where we can begin conversations. So mm -hmm. that that is the title. And now I'm, I'm good with it now because I see that it will bring a lot of conversation and some mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're talking about the ICWA, is that correct? Indian yes, Child Welfare Indian Act. Child Welfare Act. Mm -hmm. And and where where is it standing now? It seems like it's very it's very nefarious, nebulous at the same time. Yes, I think November 9th was when the argument took place. I believe that's the date. Uh, we will not know anything until I believe June. June and and what is the gist? So for our listeners to really understand ICWA. So the. Um, there is a case being <clears throat> being heard before the Supreme Court where a white family is challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act, saying that it's a racist act um, against white people to uh, adopt an Indian child. So it's so disheartening after all these years that we would have individuals come up against this, especially when children have families who would uh, care for them and yet we're still living in this, this um, one-sided whatever an adoptive family wants an adopted family gets that entitlement of 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 individuals families that way i just i don't understand that but 
that so I don't because not being a lawyer, I can't go into depth. But in the event that the Indian Child Welfare Act is overturned, it would lead to questioning other um, laws that we have established between the United States government and uh, the Indian nations of this of this land. It, uh, so it does have really incredibly strong implications. And those implications that I can really think of offhand is the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, having to do yes. with culture, having to do with a lot of things. And yes. even that would designate us as, you know, some secular group that is racist because we want to be different than Americans. Yep. Yeah. Everything um, will be challenged. Everything. Yes. And, in you know, Susan Harjo said something to you. I'm glad this notes Liz uh, Hill, our producer, sent me a note that you grew up without cultural defenses against the onslaught of racism and yes. erasure that you experienced that. That is what I felt when you were describing what was going on with the ICWA is that, wait a minute. Now, how could you taking our kids away and us not wanting you to do that can be how can that be racism against us when it's actually the other way around? And that, that's what I'm getting from what you're saying, this erasure, so to speak, by telling us that we are the racist people. Right. Yeah, that, isn't that standard uh, deflection and projection? It, it, I don't, it, it, that has been here since first contact. It really mm. has. It's in, in just inserted into whatever issue is happening between the United States government and uh, Native nations of what we have to continually stand up for. You know, when Suzanne wrote that, um, when she wrote her uh, review and she said that, I was so, it made me feel so good that she caught that or saw that because one of the things that I felt and occasionally I still see it, but not all over, not all over, but so many community, Native communities don't understand the emotional isolation that we go through living far away. Many have thought we had a you know, we're going to have a really good life because we have all the opportunities that white people have, except that we don't. We have, it is just so sad, the things that I have heard from other adoptees and what I experienced myself. And when you said, they said, didn't have any cultural references. I had said, well, if you don't know who you are, don't know anything else about that, then you're attacked for being that. It, 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 there's no defense. You feel hopeless and uh, so incredibly isolated and alone. And if that's all we had to deal with, but then everything else piled on top, it's just horrendous. And as she also said, that helping Native families to reconnect with your organization, um, the yes. First Nations Repatient Institute, is, and together, facing down, now this is what I really like what she said, facing down the generations of trauma. And through that, what you're doing is bringing that sort of, natural what I even before the ceremony it's a natural thing for people to want to go home who want to be you know put in their community of your 
blood, your DNA, so to speak, and you're bringing that back. You're you're being asked to bring this Wamblay Nietzsche ceremony back to the people who are in who are put in the same situation as you. Yeah, yeah, but I call it for our birth mothers, our birth relatives, I should say, fathers, grandparents, but especially those who carried us and gave birth. Um, lifting that veil of shame, because that that generation that gave birth to us was so much shame was put on them that um, when I was very first, when I very first started speaking to communities back in like 2003 and four, every once in a while I get an email from somebody who said their 80 year old mother has just revealed that she had a child. So we have a sibling. We're going to try to find them. And because of your talk, you uh, prompted her to want to tell her who she is and where she came from. And every mother and father and family and community deserves that. And every adoptee certainly deserves that. Wow. And, and, and in your book, you talk about... The, the sort of the timeline of you earlier growing up and remembering your parents and yet um, the whole sequence of events that happened and it just, it just, it just, so to me riveting because it, it pushes buttons, right? That, that, and, and that's good because of buttons of memory and mm-hmm. yet it also pushes the, the trauma that we had to go through in withstanding all the, you know, racial epithets that's put out there as well as the verbiage against us. And and you heard that growing up and not knowing what it really meant to be uh, an Indian kid because that memory, well, not the memory, but um, just the familiarity of that, it was not there. And you describe you first going home to Rosebud uh, Reservation in South Dakota when you were, I think, a teenager, I think it was. And 35. The first, 35. Yeah. Incredible. 35 and just smelling the air and being afraid because there's no trees being from <laughs> in Madison, Wisconsin. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> that was hilarious because like, only because of... Um, you know, you can drive forever and not see a house or anything. And I said, if we got lost out here, we'd have to stop and see if that cow can help us because there's not, this was before maps and on your phone and everything. And, um, but what I really recall with that is I suddenly realized that I was breathing like in a different, in a way that was different. I just felt like clean air was in my lungs for the first time or I breathe deep for the first time and that when you think of that too it's kind of funny because there's a lot of dust in South Dakota but yet I could still I still remember where I was the land where that on that road from um from Myrtle over to White Earth White Earth mm-hmm. White River mm-hmm. White Earth yeah. in Minnesota yeah. Yeah. <laughs> White River yeah. but there's a, I love that road and I like to I like to drive to the reservation on that road and believe there's something special there for me, just in that breath of recall of that first time. And I believe that's the welcoming of our ancestors. You know, without mm-hmm. 
me realizing it, certainly I didn't realize it at that time, but later when um, Chuck Holquin was driving me around the reservation and helping me find relatives, and I said, the only thing I regret about this is not being able to see my mother because she had passed two years before I made it there. And I'll never forget, he just reached out his hand, palm up, and motioned to to the earth, you know, your mother's here. She's been waiting for you. And I realized what he meant when he said it. In my, I always say, once the DNA is flipped over, understanding starts coming. And things that you may not have had any knowledge of before suddenly make sense to you. And that made sense immediately to me. Mm. One thing that I've witnessed is uh, our own people, because we're not familiar to them, or I'm putting myself in this, this shoes, is um, were you accepted by the people who didn't know you on the reservation right away? Probably yep. not, I'm guessing. No, I yeah. was. Ah. I don't know why. If it was, they hid it from me. <laughs> if it was, <laughs> if it <didn't. laughs> I, I was very fortunate, but I've had other adoptees talk about that. Um, I came from a really huge family, Uh, And it seemed that every relative I met knew about me, knew who my mom was and who my, you know, had stories, some kind of stories. So um, I didn't, but I have experienced lateral violence big time in the urban community. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that existed there, but that, not the coming home part, which I'm really grateful for because what I tell people is this, because what 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 I observed was being a kid that came from abuse. I would, you know, I was really hyper vigilant. Not so much as I used to be, but I was really hyper vigilant. So I was always capturing, looking out the corner of my eye, trying to feel the energy, watching people's faces. Mm-hmm. I remember my uncles looking at me, staring at me, and I know that they were looking for their sister, you know, in my face. And they he just they would smile and tell me a little bit about her. Then they would just look down. Mm. I re, I re, I know what that is. That's shame and feeling bad. Yeah. And yeah. I picked up on that. So I didn't you know I didn't push anything or whatever. But I thought about it later, and I went, especially when I found out how I was taken, and how some of them were present that day, and they couldn't stop it. And there's no place that tells families what you're going to experience when we come home. It's like we're a mirror of that trauma. You know, we we wake that part up. And then I think that's why people will push away because it's painful, you know, or not want to have a discussion because it's too painful because they don't have the words for it. What do they say? And so um, I just let everything go and and uh, knew that just to be quiet which is highly unusual for me <laughs> but i just knew to be quiet and let things be and um so that you know that's what it was that's the way it was for me mm. i felt really bad for them that they couldn't hang on to me i couldn't imagine what that would feel like wow we're speaking with sandy whitehawk author of a child of the Uni- uh, I was going to say a child of the universe, but um, a child, <laughs> a, 
in, in quotations, a child of the Indian race, a story of return. And as you know, you were adopted before the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. And we talked about it a little bit, the, the Indian American Indian Religious Freedom Act at the same year um, during, I think it was Carter's administration. But one of the things I want to know, um, then at that time, adoptions were closed. And that to me is, uh, and there was not a due process, as you say. And what what changed after that, that you were able to to find out more about where you came from, if your cases were closed? I don't know if your, your particular uh, adoption case was closed or you had process with it, but what happened to those displacements of so many other natives at that time? Well, for myself, my sister-in-law, who was just always my sidekick in our every year peeling back more and more information. But she said, you should talk to the judge here in Mission. So one of the judges that she was familiar with, she gave me the name of a judge to ask for in Pier. We drove to Pier. I uh, signed, I filled out a form and said that I wanted my records and I got them. Um, what, what has happened with other adoptees hasn't been as easy. So what I tell them is to uh, first, you have to be re, you know rejected first. Here's a letter, and I send them a sample letter to give to the juvenile court that you were adopted from. And if they say no, then let's come back. And if you know your tribe, let's go to the tribe uh, and ask the, ju the judge, the chief judge there, to send a letter saying we are seeking information on our relative. And that has worked as for some. So uh, we just have to use our use our ingenuity and mm -hmm. figure out how to get around things because it's so sad that I can't understand why a judge would say no to a 35-year-old person, a, you know, an adult who deserves to know who they are, why they would just say no. And uh, we've done that and it's been, it has worked in many cases. 2012, you started this First Nations Repatriation Institute, which is the first of its kind, a nonprofit in giving that resources to Indigenous peoples and accessibility to find out who they are, uh, either foster care or through adoption, claiming identity. This is one thing that we could talk about as we, we go out here, is that in collaboration with other other groups, such as the Native National Native American boarding schools, healing coalition, you're walking hand in hand with the, with the same yeah. stories. Tell me about yes. that. Yes. Yes. So I've been doing Indian child welfare training uh, for uh, 20 plus years, and we can never talk about child welfare today without first explaining the history of boarding schools. So I've been doing that all along. The similarities of the emotional isolation that I refer to, the loss, just the uh, the, the uh, suicide ideations, the uh, just such despair and disconnect, or very similar in that way. Um, and not be some uh, some uh, boarding school survivors feeling like they couldn't go home again, or when they went home didn't find the place for them. So there, there is that, but um, 
out the adoption industry, as I call it now, really developed after boarding schools were closed. That's when we were targeted for removal in that way. I really do want people to read this. It talks about a story of return, not just physically. It's much more for, for Native people, a spiritual return. And I remember that interview we did 17 years ago, mm-hmm. how much newness there was to actually being able to do this after maybe 20 years after the, um, what am I saying, maybe 30 years after the, the 1978 Freedom of Religion we were still, I was still like, should I ask that question? Well, I can't do that. I, I should not ruffle feathers, so to speak. But now that seems to be, it's okay to, to be who you are and come back to the reservation. I'm talking about the ones in South Dakota where, where we, Sandy Whitehawk is from the Rosebud. I'm from the Cheyenne River. And then there's, everybody knows the Pine Ridge, but it goes across the country. This story fits any reservation, any peoples, any nations that are there um, from from Maine and to California, from Washington State, Alaska to Florida. So I want people to know that, that this is a cultural collectivity, the organization that you have. And I'm so glad you're able to do this, Sandy. And I was trying to think of something wise to say, but you know, I love our humor and the healing that it brings. Yeah. So I got to say this, it just, and I, to this day, it makes me feel so good. It makes me feel part of the family, I should say. So I met my uncle Art. I had, my mother was the oldest of 19 aunts and uncles, or brothers and sisters. Anyway, so I meet this uncle Art who is no longer with us. But on the year that I met him, I got to spend some time with him and he said, I remember you. I I used to get stuck with you and all the other ones that were your age. I was always having to babysit. And I said, oh, so you saw me as a little one. as a And he goes, yeah. I go, was I cute? And he goes, no, you was ugly. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I mean, our, our Indian families are beautiful. And yeah. there's an art to that kind of tease. Yes. That makes gives you that sense of belonging, and that's what we don't have it when we are away from our families. And, and I think that was and traditionally that was even before we went through the trauma of the settler colonial state coming to in this case South Dakota. Because we always tease that way. I'm told well, yeah. my grandfather's great great grandfather who was you know alive then. But yeah, it, it, and sometimes I say it hard teasing. And I find that if I hard tease others, that is kind of terms of endearment, right? And, yes. And that's what I'm bringing in. But they're so used to being, I guess, bashed humor. You know, it, it has nothing to do with ego. It's really a loving way to, to you know, like, hey, you're my buddy type of thing. You're my... Exactly. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I do too. I miss that. So, but hey, Sandy, thank you for being here. It's really... Thank you for the book. <laughs> Thank you for the interview. I really appreciate being here. And yeah. and uh, we got to talk sometime about our mutual Cheyenne River friends. All right. Awesome. Doksha. Doksha. Doksha.
and welcome back to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Thank you for joining us wherever you may be listening to in the morning, in the daytime, or in the evening. Whatever country or whatever land you come from, I'm glad that you're with us. And now this. I'm Marco Pacati, is an intercultural artist and museum textile conservator a lifelong student of his indigenous Aymara heritage and in honor of his native community of Soka, Puno, Peru. I want to talk to Aymara about what's going on in his country of Peru within the last change of administration in December, especially about indigenous peoples, Peruvians in general, of a report yesterday, 500, nearly 600 injured and more than 500 arrested Basically, the growing calls for the president, Dina Boliarte, mm-hmm. to step down after six weeks of unrest, claiming 60 lives so far. If you could take us through the origins of this president conflict. And thank you for joining us here on First Voices, Imar. Thank you. Thank you, Tokuson. Uh, it's, it's been very painful to watch. Uh, as we were commenting at the beginning, I hadn't been able to get back to Peru. Uh, after COVID, everything was in disarray. We lost a lot of our elders and people who held our cultural traditions together to COVID and now this. So it's been a lot. Basically, I would like to start off just saying like, there's the political reasons that I will give for reasons why the protest is happening and the cultural reasons that people kind of seem to gloss over in a lot of the press I see writing about the political situation, but not really analyzing or giving respect to the last 500 plus years of what the native people have been through and how Peru is a majority indigenous nation, um, kind of controlled by the vestiges of the Spanish colonial influence on the coast. Those are two kind of distinct things, but they mix together. So basically in a nutshell, Peru has been through six presidents in the past six years. It's not always been one per year, but uh, either however way you mix the time frames, it's been six presidents in six years, which is usually a five-year term for a president. So to go through that many is highlighting a profound uh, structural problem in the democracy, because for better or worse, it's the framework we have, and it's the framework that the current president claims legitimacy with. Um so there's something going on with the executive branch and the Congress being constantly at odds. And unlike, for example, the United States, there's about 14 political parties in Congress. So that's a lot of fragmented things. And, um, you know, most Peruvians have watched them throwing this ball back and forth. Well, for the past, you know, 20 years since uh, the Fujimori dictatorship was, was ended, and that's a larger story I'll get into later. But um, for the past 20 years, democracy's done okay in Peru. Not great, but okay. And then over the last eight or 10 years, it's really gotten worse, the instability. And there's two ways of looking at that also is like from the indigenous point of view, it hasn't been good in the last you know eight or 10 years or the last 20 years. There's just longstanding lack of human rights. There's a very racialized... Uh, and I'd argue almost um, almost South African-style pre-apartheid kind of situation. I mean, you're not told you can't use this or that bathroom, but you're also firmly understood where you can and cannot go. And like uh, when I was 
still in Peru about eight years ago, there was a native man who we knew his father and he came from the Quero community of Cusco or Mausangate. And he tried to go in the Larcomar um, cinema. It's a public movie theater in a shopping mall in a very, you know, modern fashionable shopping mall. And he goes in his native attire as Poncho and his Chuyo and he's kicked out and it made uh, headlines all over the country. And there was no real justice behind that, but that's just a, an example highlighting the differences and how um, a lot of people on the coast have a lot of negative attitudes towards the Andes and the native communities in the jungle. I'd call that the, the indigenous kind of viewpoint is these kinds of abuses have been constant throughout the Republican life of the nation state of Peru, which is uh, 18, 1860 or something started uh, when we kicked out the Spanish. When I going back to the executive and the Congress kind of battling back and forth in a structural sense, both sides have too much power to undo the other. So the Congress can unilaterally with amongst themselves without having any other kind of balancing organism can decide that the president is permanently morally unfit for office and decide to take him out or her out. And the president can also dissolve Congress. Uh, if he has the backing of the military and stuff, that'll happen. That's what Fujimori did was when he became a dictator, you know, about 30 years ago. The long of the short is that President Castillo is a rural school teacher from the Quechua region of Cajamarca. He was the last uh, legitimately elected president. He was about two years into office where the Congress would not let him govern. You know, we all hear, oh, this constitutionally elected president tried to dissolve Congress, but that didn't come out of the blue. They were hacking away at him bit by bit. All the support he had in the political establishment was being undermined constantly. So he had a lot of support from the common people, majority native people of Peru, but not much support in the political elite, which has a really oversized grip on the country. So he was being constitutionally convicted for treason because there's a piece of oceanfront in Ilo, Peru, in southern Peru, that was technically offered and given for a future seaport for Bolivia to have access to the ocean, which has been landlocked since the War of the Pacific uh, when Chile took their ocean access. So like, you know, 20 years ago, this, or maybe less, but, you know, no longer than 10 years ago, this um, piece of oceanfront kind of like a, not an easy place to build a port or a jetty or anything in the Pacific Ocean is offered to Bolivia as a fraternal offering between countries that at one, at one time shared the same boundaries and were the same country. So President Castillo, for example, said, oh, I would like to put it up to a national referendum if we would like to formally give this oceanfront to Bolivia because it had been offered and i'm not really detailed on the specifics it had been in play for you know at least a decade and then the congress he's saying oh that's treason because he said he would like to offer it up to a you know a public referendum to vote in a democracy about whether or not that should be given to bolivia i read that in my my thinking is wow they are looking for any excuse they can find to get him out of office so he was about to undergo a second uh, impeachment process in the Congress, and the first one failed. And if the second one failed, I believe that he was 
would have been allowed to legally dissolve Congress. He jumped the gun and thought it was going to fail, so he dissolved Congress. Because it went that way instead of the other way, uh, Congress was able to, within the rules, uh, revoke his presidency. Uh, he didn't have the support of the political elite, the right-wing establishment, the military, the police, etc. The people were very upset by that. You know, and this woman who was his vice president became president. And up until that point, she had been, you know, left-leaning uh, government of this president that was elected by popular demand. So she has done a complete 360 or a 180. I don't know. She has completely flipped the mandate she was given by the public, uh, cozied up to the right-wing extremists, and kind of set in motion this big problem. She wouldn't step down. There was an original massacre of about 18 people in Ayacucho, you know, 15-year-old kids. I mean, acts of people who are wandering by, you know, going out to get shopping for food, and they're not in the protest, but they get, you know, a straight bullet. The police were just using no discretion and started firing live rounds instead of, like, they're allowed to fire the, the rubber bullets and the tear gas and all this other stuff. And she dug in her heels, I think, because she was, she's afraid of being criminally prosecuted for all of this. In the beginning, where she had stepped down then, she would have saved another 30 lives and been in a, maybe in a lot less trouble because it seems like when you admit your guilt and show some remorse, it seems like the justice system tends to go a little easier on you. But... She dug in her heels. Uh, there's this minister, Otorola. He seems to be like the power behind it. There's a lot of right-wing power behind this. And there's a man called Montesinos who's in jail for life. Uh, he was the dark hand behind the Fujimori time, the terrorism, and the state. But it's like we never really left where we were in the 90s. He stole billions of dollars from the state. He created a narco state. He was funneling cocaine and kind of CIA style covert things. And he videotaped obsessively him paying off the media. So this is a, a practice that started back then of paying off the media, of lumping all protests and all um, division or, you know, all, all voices of dissent as terrorists because there was a Shining Path uprising, a Maoist insurgency in Peru for almost 20 years, with a total of 69,000 dead between 1980 and 2000. So these are ongoing wounds. So this guy had a huge part to play in those 69,000 deaths. 70, 75% of those people spoke a native language. And that was like kind of the first big post-colonial massacre of native peoples in Peru. You know, so the current situation has really laid that wound out again poured salt in it and just made it hurt and so you have a lot of people who suffered back then the violent political violence the armed violence reverting back to these postures and not seeing the complexities of the natives who were kind of caught in the middle then and are still caught in the middle now but now they're actually speaking up for themselves instead of you know a maoist um minded western style um insurgency with arms this is not an armed insurgency but we are being treated as if we are armed we have rock slings that have been around for thousands of years we have fireworks 
occasionally around the mining areas, they are defending themselves and maybe provoking the police a little bit too much with dynamite. But other than that, these are unarmed protesters. Let me get back to the guy named Montesinos. He's in jail for life, and he somehow offered that he could end the protests when they first started, and he went to one of the generals. He had access to one of the generals from jail, and this general has since stepped down right before the, right before the massacre started, and he's since gone to the press, and kind of, and which is not getting much press, even though it's like really heavy allegations saying this man is supposed to be in jail and and should be completely out of politics and have no influence in this country and its functioning is right in there with the military can pull access to generals and is claiming that he could stop these protests and claiming that one of the heads of the terrorist movement from the two from the 1980s uh, is leading this protest from jail and could stop it. And that part is absurd because it's a grassroots protest by native peoples, but it kind of highlighted how much power this, this guy Montesinos has because he basically got that general taken out. I mean, this is my supposition. I'm not, who knows, but he has pull. He's still speaking with people in power. He tried to escape Peru. He, in a submarine, <laughs> he had, I mean, this guy's quite a piece of work. I don't know how this first, this first general was trying to talk sense to Dina Boluarte and saying, I'm very concerned, Miss, Mrs. President, with your verbiage and how you're portraying this problem as a military problem. These are civilian protesters and you have a political problem. And if you proceed with green lighting military response to a political problem, you indeed then will have a very big problem and it'll be on your shoulders. Please think about all these things and respond, you know, in a proportional way. And the general who was saying this was taken out, stepped down, removed from that position close to the presidency. And then they put this other general in and the next day was a massacre. So there's some very dark hands moving around there. So the general that denied speaking with Montesinos was taken away. The one that said, hey, I shouldn't be speaking to a guy in jail for 20 years for previous shadowy maneuvers. That guy's taken out. The people around the presidency put in a yes man. And the next day you have, you know, 18 dead in Ayacucho in a nutshell. There's a lot going on underneath that nutshell. What I'm reading now on the news that you say doesn't really go between the lines is that now their Amnesty International is calling for writing letters to Spain to stop them from selling arms, basically military equipment to these groups, in actually to the government in Peru. And this is what they're doing, the main supplier of weapons to Peru in the European Union, basically, and the, this is this is facilitating all these serious human rights violations you're talking about. And I'm really interested, Imar, in the indigenous and what's underneath all of this this wordplay, political puppet governments, tongue in cheek kind of rule. As as I would think, is is there must be an issue with 
the land, so, so to speak. There must be something going on with the land. Do you know, can we talk about that a little bit as far as indigenous peoples being the majority in Peru? Yeah, and I just want to throw in there real quick. I was reading right before I jumped on this call that uh, the Peruvian police have issued an emergency request to the government to buy another 665,000 articles of crowd control armament. It's twice as much as they just ordered, and it's now a Brazilian manufacturer. So whatever pressure they may have gotten from Spain or who knows, they're going to just go somewhere else and buy a lot more weapons instead of you know, using their hearts and thinking how to adjust to people and getting past this, they're just doubling down. So it's, it's scary. And the mineral interests are there. There's a 1993 constitution that was imposed by the dictator Fujimori. And that constitution says that all the mineral rights underneath all the native lands and any land in the territory of Peru is, you know, property and can be done as pleased by the government because there's a lot of mining of copper, of gold, of uh, lithium. They love the lithium now for your electric cars. Everybody who thinks that they're doing a good thing by buying an electric car. It's like a lot of these global, we're going to see people in governments land grabbing to get the lithium out from under a lot of native held lands, probably all over the world, you know, to make your Teslas go. So I'm all for getting past the, the harm we're causing our mother earth with the petroleum, but it, it's unintended consequences, you know, that have long flights back home where they started and cause a lot of pain and grief. So the, the mineral rights are a big one. That constitution does not uh, kind of reflect, for example, the declaration of indigenous rights that came out of the UN. Yeah. Peru signed that document but they're not implementing it. And that's a document that could be ratified by regional governments. That's a document um, that could be put into local action if the national government refuses to act. And that document would would help um, stop a lot of these issues, at least um, put a pause on the absolute control uh, from from the capital towards, towards the provinces. Very interesting. What what connections I'm finding here is you talked about Peru and Bolivia kind of doing a good handshake. Let's let's celebrate. Let's be indigenous because that's what Bolivia is. Majority in indigenous peoples as well. If anything has to do with the land anywhere, multinational mining interests come into play. And as you, as you say, support the lithium batteries, electric cars, the infrastructure that you talk about is basically falling to support the indigenous folks because I think that's what they want, the chaos out of it. But also what happens to, I think one of the biggest interests Peru has is, is tourism. So that means economy will suffer as well as the land, but the land is what is making tourism. And I've been there, you've been there. A lot of people that are listening to this radio program have been to Machu Picchu, you know, mm-hmm. and, and maybe that's a privilege Maybe that's something that we really have to look at, but maybe there's something else going on that we should be supporting. And I'm really advocating for support of indigenous peoples coming out. They're not factions. These indigenous peoples, many, many nations there have been established for centuries, if not thousands and thousands of years. 
sustaining, maintaining, being, living with the land. And yet here comes this, this uh, as you say, 1860 state government. But it, And you mentioned, and I'm sorry about this, but you, you mentioned a pre-apartheid racialized um, uh, movement going on. And yes, that's on that's the top layer. But down below, it's no longer a post-colonial, it's still a settler colonial state because that's what imposed with civilization is a settler colonial state. And there's many of those across the world, as we know, the United States is a settler colonial state. And there's some in the Middle East that are settler colonial states. But now here we have one that's underneath the armpit and nobody's really paying attention to it because we're interested in what's going on in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the history, uh, Pizarro and Almagro were, you know, the criminals from Spain that came and destroyed the Inca empire and began the criminalizing of being native and slaughtering. That was a true genocide to create the Spanish footprint that we're trying to live under now. And that was started in Lima. Lima is the city of Kings. This is where El Dorado came, you know, the mystical uh, city of gold and something I look into through my artwork and my investigations is the gold and silver that was pillaged uh, in many cases went to fuel the initiation of the industrial revolution in Europe. They didn't have any more gold and silver to make money. They were, they had mined out all their gold and silver. So they had a currency problem amongst the early feudal economy in Europe. They, they had nothing left to grow with. They needed to print more money. I mean, look at the U S we need to print more money in the next few weeks here out of thin air, poof, like a couple trillion or the trillion dollar coin or whatever they're saying. So they were at that same crossroads, you know, in the late 1400s, and they needed to get out of there and they needed more um, to continue their project. So, you know, they found Peru, they found Mexico, they started the plunder and all that silver and gold went in and Spain handed it most of it over. I feel through my investigations to the Puritan minded nation of England, where they produce a lot of goods, you know, Spain has more of a mercenary type vibe historically they weren't producers they're more like intermediaries so they start paying england to produce all the fine linens and to get the the spice and stuff out of india and and that's what came to here to the us to the east coast of the us is is the 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 branch off of the larger industrial revolution so that's a very old colonial ancestral wound the largest silver mine in the Americas is Potosi in Bolivia. A lot of the Aymara people left it. When you see that devil dance, if anyone's ever seen the, the Diablo dancing they do in Puno and in Bolivia, that's a humorous way to poke fun at the Spanish uh, for the forced labor. You know, who knows how many thousands of natives perished in those mines. And then they realized the natives were not good slaves. So they started importing slaves from Africa, which also didn't work. And they just kept pushing people into that mine, um, a lot of them to their deaths. Aymar, this is, um, thank you for saying all of this. I think we should pick up on this next week and continue. Let's talk about these um, ancestral wounds. And as you say, these unresolved colonial traumas, 
this is what we suffered for, what, 500 years? But what about these peoples who brought it? So the view from the, sh the shore is a little different. And I say that, um, and I think, as you put it into political, cultural, resounding or recolonizations going on here, especially with, with uh, the, the rearrangement of the political state in Peru with Dina Bolarte, right? She has um, taken over since December 7th with the old president, Pedro Castillo. Now the students, especially the young people, politically astute as they are, it seems to me as a North American in the United States that in experiencing going into South America, that South Americans are more politically astute, aware, and democracy is not all, no one's lining, lining up for democracy. It seems that that's being enforced on people and, and the dream they say America is, is not coming true in Peru. It's been very interesting, the strength of social media, and scary because social media means you can record every minute detail of, you know, one crazy police officer going on a shooting spree. There's all kinds of clips on Facebook and, and YouTube of these horrible moments, which is a very important tool for investigation, for justice uh, within the system we're bound by. But, you know, at the same time, it's scary because you can get together 10,000 people coordinatedly like you couldn't as easily before the internet, which kind of ups the stakes and makes it um, a little, it makes it a lot more likely to have the kind of massacre. I was reading something this morning about when the Shining Path thing started in 1980, uh, the military stepped in and quelled the protests and killed 14 or 18 people. And that's what started a 30-year civil war. And now, in the span of a month, they've killed 60-plus people, wounded 700 people, and we know about it all, all over the world. I think the youth are, are very astute with using these tools. I think that it's very important. Like you, you can't just take it for granted that democracy anywhere in the world, especially when it's being used in a like uh, sort of the Bible way where they're trying to convert you and force you to say you have to accept this idea of democracy. Well, then the rules should be applied to everybody because the current president is kind of saying, well, follow the rules, everybody. If you didn't protest, you wouldn't be getting massacred. Um, but the rules clearly state that protest is a legitimate right. It's like, you, you know, you use the tools that you have at your disposal in these kinds of times. I want to thank you, Aymar Kokopati, for being here. And we'll tune in to you next week and we'll suss this out, so, as they say, and talk more. Thank you so much, Jogerson. Great honor to have you here. And that was Aymar Kokopati, who is an intercultural artist and museum textile conservator, a lifelong student of his indigenous Aymara heritage, and in honor of his native community of Guyana Soka, Puna, Peru.
to First Voices Radio. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse, and you can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. Oshimla ye oyate wani wachichuelo, doksha ake wachinktelo.